Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our series on horror vacui or fear of the void, uh, which we have uh, we've been mainly focusing, I think, on like art and design in the past couple of episodes. But today I wanted to take a look at uh, the history of the vacuum and uh, specifically resistance to the idea of the vacuum in philosophy and physics. And uh, to begin, uh, I was reading about the uh, the scientific history of vacuum physics in a book called The Void by Frank Close from Oxford University Press in 2007. Uh, Frank Close is a professor of physics at, at Oxford, uh, I think emeritus now. But uh, anyway, I was reading about this and he included a quote from the Rig Veda that I thought was very interesting. This is from the uh, the creation hymn of the Rig Veda, which says in translation, There was neither non-existence nor existence then. There was neither the realm of space nor the sky which is beyond. What stirred? Where? And I really like this because it, it, I think it encapsulates a kind of, uh, uh, a fascinated but challenging uh, history of attempts to conceptualize empty space, to even imagine what empty space would mean if it were to exist. Because I noticed kind of a gap here. As far as I can tell, most people all around the world today, even in various, you know, different cultures, whatever, really, as as far as I can tell, don't seem to express any major problems making sense of the idea of empty space. Obviously, there is a lot we don't know about the nature of space. What is space? Where does it come from? What different kinds of space could there be? And so forth. So space is still a vessel of many mysteries. It's not like we've got it all solved. But if you just simplify the idea to the basics, 
I, and I think most people, don't have any problem imagining the concept of an area of three-dimensional space with no particles in it. That just, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense as an idea to me. But if you read about how ancient Greek philosophers wrote about this question, I do not get the impression that the same was generally true for them. Not only did many of them deny the possibility of empty space existing, sometimes I get the feeling that they are struggling to even imagine what the concept would mean. Do, do you know what I'm getting at here, Rob? Yeah, yeah, this, um, this is something we talked a little bit about off mic before the, the episode here. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of complicated. I mean, on one level, yeah, we, there, there are always going to be linguistic uh, possibilities in play. For example, I was looking into some uh, sources on the void in Chinese philosophy, and you run into, for example, that there are separate terms for such concepts as emptiness, nothingness, and the infinite or the absolute. Uh, and and uh, one source here is looking at uh, Fan Minghua in Frontiers of Philosophy in China from 2010 contends that there are subtleties involved that, quote, English language is unable to capture. So, yeah, we have to acknowledge linguistic possibilities. But on the other hand, like thinking about like, what is it as a modern human? Like, why do I, like you, have no problem imagining a vacuum um, or, or even a, a void? And I think part of it may be like just the mechanical possibilities that we have now and the media evidence mm. thereof. So, for instance, when I think about a perfect vacuum, I can I can imagine a device that mechanically makes it so within, say, a closed space. I can think back to footage of someone in a, it's not a perfect vacuum, but a place that has no air, that sort of vacuum. Because I guess we get into differences too. Are we talking about a space without air? Um, in which, say, uh, a scientist in a suit may drop a feather in a bowling ball and do that whole experiment? Or are we talking about something that, that is a, a true vacuum with nothing in it at all, like, a, like an absolute void? Um, and, and there are differences there. But yeah, as far as just like, maybe it gets into the idea of imagining a space with air in it. Like we, we have this clear idea of what atmosphere is and what air is and we can also see and behold and sort of to some degree understand the mechanics by which that air may be removed from a space and therefore yeah. you could have a space where the visible is not present and the invisible has been removed as well yeah that's a very good point and i think for uh like one major difference may be the uh unsettled uh, question of like whether the air itself has weight for much of human history. Like mm -hmm. if, if you don't have that worked out, it may just be harder to imagine what uh, space devoid of even gas particles would be. Yeah. But I want to turn to some examples that Frank Close looks at in, in this book, especially his uh, his first chapter on sort of the ancient history of the void in uh, in physics uh, to to look at how, how this idea was thought of before the modern era. So the pre-Socratic Greek philosopher Thales of Miletus, who lived from the 7th to the 6th century BCE, uh, writing about the idea of emptiness or void without substance, is actually kind of tempted to ask, can there be such a thing as nothing if someone is able to think about it? Wouldn't thinking about it mean it was something? And again, this raises an an interesting question for me. I mean, my initial reaction is just like, well, no, <laughs> but, you know, so imagine a container with empty space in it. I, I don't think by thinking about that, we change the nature of what's in the container. But this does kind of 
raise the specter of like, if there could be a vacuum uh, for people like Thales, maybe this has almost more sort of totalizing cosmic implications that the ability of a vacuum to exist says something about the universe as a whole, not just one region of the universe, say, inside of a glass bottle or something. So that's one level in which I respond. But then on the other hand, I can sympathize with thoughts like this, knowing some things about modern physics, because in a very real sense, empty space is, I think you can make the argument that it is not nothing. Empty space is something, even though it is not matter. Uh, So this may come from a failure to distinguish between space and a concept like nothingness, in which case, like if you're imagining space is something like space has properties, then in fact, it couldn't be nothing, which is what Thales was thinking about. Yeah, this perhaps distinction between nothingness and emptiness. Um, This whole thing about thinking about it, making it maybe less nothing. Um, This reminds me of another paper I was looking at, Being and Nothingness in Greek and Ancient Chinese Philosophy by Ji Ming Xin, Philosophy East and West, 1951. Uh, this author points out that in both Chinese Taoism and Greek philosophy, you see this culmination of things in nothingness. Quote, nothingness is the nature of being in itself, which is absolutely transcendent and nameless. So if I'm interpreting this correctly, the sort of dual identity of nothingness in these two uh, different thought systems, nothingness is ultimately that which comes before substance, but also comes before human attributed meaning. Um, mm. So, yeah, like even thinking about even giving it a name uh, changes the nothingness of it, at, at least from these perspectives. Yes, though I, with Greek philosophy, I know it very much depends on which philosopher you're talking about, because a lot of these big Greek philosophers, uh, they were emphatic in specifically rejecting the idea that the universe could have come from nothingness, that there could ever have been nothingness, or that the universe would ever disappear into nothingness. Like that was specifically uh, part of what the cosmological history that Thales was arguing for. Uh, According to Thales, it it would be impossible for the universe to have come from nothingness and it would be impossible for it to ever become nothing. There's just sort of like infinitely the same stuff. Without getting into the exacts of it all, though, when you hear some of these sweeping explanations of what, say, the universe would be if it were reduced to a singularity, you know, uh, that sort of thing. Like, that's not nothing. It's something, but it's such a strange and alien concept, so different from certainly our perceivable reality, that it might as well be nothing, you know? Yes, that's a good point. And, of course, again, to highlight the difference between nothingness and empty space. Uh, Nothingness, Mm -hmm. I think, is much harder to define. I don't know exactly what we mean when we talk about nothingness. It's sort of a more uh, 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 slippery, mysterious concept, whereas empty space, again, it's not that we understand everything about it, but it is something that has physical properties and can be manipulated. We know some things about it. Yeah, like even linguistically, when we talk about a vacuum, say we've formed an artificial vacuum inside of a reinforced uh, steel chamber, does that steel chamber contain a vacuum? And therefore, the vacuum is not nothing because it is a thing by virtue of being different from everything surrounding it. Oh, because it is contained. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that raises another question of um, when you ask whether a vacuum exists in nature. I mean, in reality, whenever we're talking about a vacuum, we're talking about uh, essentially low density gas. So mm -hmm. and, and the question is, how low density does the gas have to get? before you are comfortable talking about a region of it as a vacuum. So like and say the and we can come back to this maybe in, in the next part of the series or something, but like in interstellar voids, there are still particles floating around out there. They're just very far apart compared to much closer to stars or in the atmosphere of a planet. But I guess the question would be, how far apart does every individual particle of matter have to get before you say, OK, this is really a total vacuum? Mm hmm. Uh, but to come back to Thales for a second, uh, Close makes an interesting argument uh, about Thales sort of having something in his cosmology similar to uh, to a kind of uh, empty space, basically a primeval material or a sort of ground state for the universe. And Close argues that for Thales, this ground state of existence was water. This belief is related to the fact that we can observe water going through phase changes, so we can see water as solid ice, as liquid, as water vapor. And uh, Close says that Thales assumed that the diversity of forms went on from there, and in fact, water was the basis of every material on Earth. Rocks, plants, air, etc. are all somehow water in some some uh, extrapolated form. And so he writes, quote, space for Thales is as empty as it can be when all matter in it has been turned into its primeval form, liquid water, like the ocean. Water thus contains every possible form of matter. I think we've actually discussed this before um, yeah. in connection to his work. Like you get down to the idea of a cosmic ocean, of, yeah. a, of a primordial ocean the, on which there is no land and no being. So there are definitely uh, similarities between imagining, say, the, you know, the gods or the creator or whatever hovering over a, a great void and hovering over a great ocean. That the, Those mm -hmm. are like similar ideas in some of these ancient cosmologies, at least. Uh, but anyway, going on from there, in the 5th century BCE, there's another pre-Socratic Greek philosopher, Empedocles, who argued that there were actually uh, four fundamental forms of matter. It wasn't that everything came from water, like Thales thought, that there was, in fact, earth, air, fire, and water. And Empedocles notably realized that air was itself a substance and not merely empty space. He also believed there was no such thing as empty space. Uh, but, of course, the discovery that air is not empty space does not mean that empty space cannot exist. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we, we come to the atomists, who are very interesting in their departure from these other ways of thinking. So uh, the atomists included a number of ancient philosophers like Leucippus, Democritus, and Epicurus who believed quite remarkably uh, ahead of their time that all matter is actually made up of imperceptibly tiny particles, which they called atoms from the Greek word atomos, which uh, is derived from something that means like cannot be cut or basically indivisible. Now, of course, today we know that atoms are, are not actually indivisible. They are made up of subatomic particles like protons, neutrons, electrons, and even protons and neutrons uh, can be further subdivided. But 
ancient atomists did not have the experimental uh, apparatus needed to discover this. Instead, they arrived at the atomic view of physics primarily by way of thought experiments and everyday empirical observations, such as the observation of uh, things like the erosion of solid matter in nature. So if you have mm. a great, you know, a grand marble staircase and you notice that over the years, the steps on the staircase are eroding. There is sort of like sagging in the places where people walk on them. Well, they're solid marble. Where are they going? How do marble steps wear away over the ages? It must be because each person who steps on them removes some tiny, uh, invisibly small amount of matter. But that invisibly small amount of matter, those little atoms that are taken away, accumulate over time and the steps are worn down. But importantly for this discussion, the atomists believed that there actually is such a thing as empty space. In fact, it was core to their theory that the universe was composed of atoms in motion. Those atoms in motion needed a space through which to move. And the atomists argued that if there were already something uh, in the place an atom was moving to, the atom couldn't move there because then two atoms would be occupying the same space at once. So there had to be such a thing as empty space. That was the only way that such space could come to be occupied. You know, there has to be space for things to move into or nothing can move. But after this, we get back to Aristotle because, uh, and we mentioned him at the beginning of the first episode in this series, uh, for better or worse, Aristotle would pretty much have the last word on this question for centuries to come until experiments in the 17th century would strongly challenge his decree. But Aristotle says there is no such thing as empty space. Uh, and I was reading about the Aristotelian uh, framework or foundation for the science of uh, the, the early modern period in the Cambridge History of Science, Volume 3, edited by Lindbergh et al. This was in a chapter called Physics and Foundations by the Princeton philosopher Daniel Garber. And uh, he makes some interesting points, but reading this chapter, uh, this is the way I was thinking about it. So when we think of physics today, we usually think of it as a science contained within certain boundaries. Like there are certain kinds of questions that are physics questions and there are other questions that are not. Physics is the study of properties of matter and energy, something like that. And that's a huge field. So you can ask tons of questions in it, like how are stars formed or what is the relationship between particle mass and the Higgs field? But if uh, in a physics journal today, you tried to submit a paper on a question like, what are the basic modes of existence and what is being and what is the relationship of those uh, things to, say, God, uh, this would probably be rejected as outside the scope of the physical <laughs> sciences. You know, like the editors would say, you, you need to submit this to a different journal. However, this attempted limitation of scope was not always present in fields analogous to physics throughout history. There are many times uh, in history where these things really kind of blend together, or at least uh, philosophical foundations are thought to have relevant things to say about physics theories. So uh, the, these, these philosophical foundations might include religious worldviews. Uh, so you could think about the way that um, the, the uh, scientists of the Islamic world in the Middle Ages might have thought of Islam as a uh, theological foundation for the sciences, or the way that Christian natural philosophers of Europe might have thought about Christianity in the same way. Uh, but in the West, there was a major 
uh, secular philosophical foundation of early science also, and that was Aristotelianism, the philosophy of Aristotle, uh, again, uh, 4th century BCE Greek philosopher. And I think it's fair to say that for like hundreds of years in the schools and universities of, uh, of medieval through early modern Europe, the philosophy of Aristotle was not taught in the way that it would be taught in a college class today. Like today, you would teach it like, here is an interesting piece of intellectual history, maybe providing a certain point of view and showing the development of how people thought about X, Y, or Z. Instead, I think it was often taught in a way that was closer to how people would have thought about the Bible. It's mm-hmm. like Aristotle said it, that pretty much settles it. Yeah, yeah. So you end up with with various uh, discussions and arguments coming down to either what Aristotle said or disagreements over what Aristotle did say or meant or what he would have said or meant about a given topic. Right. So and and to be clear, it wasn't always this way. But you know, it wasn't that everybody thought Aristotle was literally infallible, but it seems to me like he was often treated by the scholastics as something approaching infallibility. Like it was mm-hmm. just ludicrous to question Aristotle, though in, in some cases people did. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right, it's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. 
Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. So we should discuss what Aristotle says about the void. Um, Aristotle denies the possibility of the existence of empty space, uh, specifically in his book Physics, Book 4. And as is so often true with these ancient philosophers, he makes his case for the non-existence of a vacuum, not by like doing an experiment and describing it, but by cold ratiocination. He is going to reason his way out of having to believe in empty space. Garber, in his chapter, quotes a translation of Aristotle for one of his arguments along these lines. Aristotle says, Now it, space or place, has three dimensions, length, breadth, depth, the dimensions by which all body is bounded. But the place cannot be body, for if it were, there would be two bodies in the same place. What in the world, then, are we to suppose place to be? And the implied answer is nothing. Uh, so note a kind of interesting contradiction. It seems to me, at least, that we had the atomists pointing to the fact that two objects can't be in the same place at the same time to prove that there must be empty space, because remember, moving particles have to have unoccupied space to move into. And here Aristotle is using the same premise in a way to say that space cannot exist independent of matter or else it would have to occupy the same place as matter at the same time. But coming back to close, he summarizes Aristotle's arguments by saying, uh, quote, So for Aristotle, logic seemed to require that empty space cannot be something and therefore is non-existent. He defined the void as where there is no body, and since the basic elements of things exist eternally, there can be no place that is completely empty. Aristotle may have been getting some mileage here out of uh, confusion over the difference between empty space as something and like nothingness as is in a way meaning non-existence. Hmm. Now, Garber in his Physics and Foundations chapter writes that by the 13th century, writers in the scholastic tradition in Europe who believed in Aristotelian dogmas had begun assuming the existence of a natural force known as horror vacui. Uh, again, a phrase that Aristotle himself did not use, but which aligned with his teaching on this matter, that nature would not permit a vacuum. And uh, the scholastic writers characterized this as a force in nature which prevents vacua from emerging, almost like there's sort of a law of nature, something going on that will not let a vacuum uh, be created and thus forces matter to fill in the gaps. So you can pump out that container as much as you want, but horror vacui will prevent it from actually being empty inside. Uh, and, and another interesting thing uh, I wanted to flag here is that Garber notes a conflict between this Aristotelian dogma 
and some uh, religious reasoning that arose in the church in the 13th century that eventually led to the the famous condemnations of 1277, where we got a bishop condemning Aristotle. Uh, so uh, to read from Garber here, quote, one consequence was that without space outside of the finite world, not even God would seem to be able to move the universe if he chose to do so. This apparent consequence of Aristotelian doctrine was rejected in the famous condemnation of Aristotle by Etienne Tempier, the Bishop of Paris in 1277. Uh, and then quoting in translation here, we condemn the proposition that God could not move the heavens with rectilinear motion, and the reason is that a vacuum would remain. <laughs> so uh, Garber says this really kind of put the scholastic Aristotelians in a bind because in some ways they they had to defend the possibility of some kind of empty space existing in the universe, at least potentially for theological reasons, but they didn't want to violate the the principles of Aristotle to which they, they were uh, loyal. Hmm. But anyway, uh, going on, uh, Frank Close makes a, an interesting argument that I, I think I would agree with, that we shouldn't be too hard on the prevailing Aristotelian belief in, uh, in Horovakui because without special equipment and experiments, I don't know, it really just seems like that from everyday existence. Like, it seems like reality prevents voids from forming. Uh, examples given by the ancient philosophers were things like, hey, you suck all the air out of an empty wineskin, the wineskin collapses, like it shrinks in. Removing the air does not result in a void inside the skin. It causes the walls of the skin to shrink proportional to the amount of air you're able to remove. You could also use this belief in nature's hatred for the vacuum to explain the workings of pumps and siphons. So beyond the fact that Aristotle said it, it just kind of seemed right with everyday experience. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, you're not walking around your home and just suddenly walking into a vacuum. Right. Um, like <laughs> even the empty rooms are, are full. They're, they're teeming uh, with, uh, with, with matter. Uh, and these are, I think, all, all great examples where you could, you could imagine someone saying, look, proof uh, right here. Look at this wineskin. Uh, if you can form a void in this wineskin, then I'll believe you. Otherwise, absolutely not. So while Horovakui had its critics for a long time, I think it's safe to say that it was really like the 17th century where this idea was laid to rest. Uh, so uh, coming back to this idea of like when you suck on a straw, what is the force that actually causes the mm -hmm. liquid in your drink to rise up the straw into your mouth? Uh, you could imagine it as a vacuum created that like sort of resists formation and thus sucks the, the liquid up. The same question was actually raised around the year 1600 uh, and brought to the attention of Galileo. There are some examples I've read about with this. One is an example of, uh, uh, I think, a, a scientist sort of at the time, a natural philosopher who had been trying to construct a big siphon and encountered problems at, at a certain height of the siphon. Uh, but then I've also read about an influence here being... Uh, people digging wells and mine shafts who would try to remove water from these pits using uh, like plunger-based pumps to lift the water out through a pipe. Hmm. There was a problem in, in all these cases with the siphons and the pumps. Basically, the pumps stopped working after a certain height. After the water was raised roughly 10.3 meters or so, when you had 10.3 meters worth of a column in the pipe, it would stop going higher, wouldn't climb the pipe anymore. And instead, 
a gap would appear between the water column and the the plunger, or the piston, or, or, or whatever you're using to pump it out. So, what's going on here? What was the what was actually limiting the height of the water pump system? Well, Galileo investigated this question, and he suspected that the force that drew water up through a pump or a siphon may in fact be the force of horror vacui. So the, the vacuum is resisting formation and thus pulling water up after itself. And so when you try to run the pump, the fact that the universe is resisting creating a vacuum in that space in between is forcing water up. I love how this, uh, this, this uh, also kind of implies that Galileo was maybe not uh, solving a physics problem, but responding to a pump problem. Where they're like, get Galileo on the horn. We got a problem with this pump here. See if he, see if he has time this afternoon to look at it. Well, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about Galileo. I mean, he he was at all ends of the spectrum here, right? <laughs> Working on theoretical problems and astronomy and everyday, you know, mechanical physics problems. Mm-hmm. But it all, yeah, it is hilarious. Imagine. I, I don't know exactly when this was first raised to him, uh, but. It, it's it's fun to imagine somebody who's like trying to get water out of their basement or their mine shaft, and they they were just able to uh, to call up Galileo, or maybe he arrives on his own. He's like a superhero. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So he imagines that that maybe it is the force of of uh, nature resisting the formation of a vacuum that pulls the water up the pipe. But then at a certain point, the weight of the water in the pipe is too much. There's too much water, and it the vacuum resistance can't carry it any higher. It has reached the the limit of the strength of uh, nature's resistance to a vacuum. So fascinating question, but Galileo never solved it in his lifetime. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. 
Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Enter a couple of other figures. Uh, we got a guy named Gasparo Berti, who lived 1600 to 1643, and Evangelista Torricelli, 1608 to 1647. And Rob, I, I got a picture of uh, Torricelli for you to look at here. I think he is incredibly notable for having a Batman symbol as a mustache. Yeah, certain portraits of this guy um, have it worse than others. But yes, it has this, I guess it's sort of a Van Dyke, though... In other portraits, it really feels uh, cruciform. It feels like, it. Lo- I mean, it looks like he took a crucifix with flared arms mm-hmm. and was perhaps kissing it so much that the barber had to uh, uh, shave him around that crucifix, resulting mm-hmm. in this hairstyle. Um, uh, yeah. It's, um, it's a lot. I want my muzzle to make you think of the passion, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. It is a bold look. So these two Italian scientists, Berti and Torricelli, performed similar experiments in the early 1640s that would clarify what was going on here. Uh, Berti did an experiment with water, and then several years later, Torricelli did a more definitive and more famous experiment with quicksilver, which we know today as elemental liquid mercury. Hmm. So Torricelli's experiment went like this. You would get a glass tube about one meter long and fill it completely with liquid mercury. Uh, So this tube would be closed completely at one end and open at the other. So you fill it with liquid mercury and you temporarily plug up the open end. So one end is permanently closed. One end, you, you know, put a finger over it to close it. And then you flip the tube upright, vertical, and sit the open end down in a big basin of more liquid mercury. So you got like a tub of liquid mercury. Mm-hmm. So you flip it up. You have the, the plugged open end facing down into the, the lake of mercury. And then you unplug it. You remove the finger or the plug. Now, remember, the tube started totally full of mercury, but now that it's unplugged, the mercury can flow down into the basin with the rest of the mercury. And when he tried this, the mercury in the tube did fall, but not all the way. It fell to leave a column of mercury about 76 centimeters in height and then a gap for the rest of the tube length up at the closed top. So what was the gap? Well, Torricelli reasoned, 
that it was actually a vacuum. There was effectively nothing inside the tube for those empty centimeters above the column of mercury. The other guy, Gasparo, uh, Gasparo Berti, had performed a similar experiment with water several years before, and they both, both of these experiments seemed to provide evidence that it was indeed possible for empty space to exist. But the question remained, what was holding up the water in the tube, and why would the water only rise up the tube to a certain height, or... Uh, to put it another way, why would the liquid only fall down to a certain consistent height uh, in the tube? The answer was also illuminated by Torricelli's experiment. For one thing, by comparing the difference between the height of a water column in a tube and the height of a mercury column in a tube, they were different because water and mercury have different densities. And so what Torricelli uh, proposed and what, in fact, was correct is that the force that kept the water or the mercury column raised in the tube was actually the force of atmospheric pressure. Mm -hmm. The pressure of the air pushing down on the water or the mercury in the basin below. And these tube systems, assembled by Bertie and Torricelli, were actually systems for establishing an equilibrium between the weight of the liquid in this column in the tube and the weight the atmosphere exerts on the liquid in the basin below. The liquid in the sealed tube would fall until the weight of the column was equal to the atmospheric pressure, and then it would float and fall no more, leaving mostly a vacuum in the space above. However, there was another question. There was the question of what is causing this. It was important to demonstrate that the vacuum was not the thing exerting the force. Torricelli did this with another experiment involving two mercury tubes, uh, one with a sort of bulb on the sealed top end. And the bulb would mean that a greater volume of empty space was left at the top when the liquid fell after the bottom was unplugged. So would that make the mercury fall to a different level? And it turns out the extra empty space did not matter at all. The liquid fell to the same height regardless. So the force exerted on the column of water uh, in the pipe or the tube was not a pull from the vacuum. It was not a pull proportional to the amount of vacuum created. It was a push proportional to the relationship between the atmospheric pressure and the density of the liquid. And this was further demonstrated in experiments performed by Blaise Pascal and, uh, and I think with some input from Descartes. Uh, but Blaise Pascal and collaborators testing a similar experiment at different altitudes. So you might uh, you'd test it at the foot of a mountain and then go up to the top of a mountain and test mm -hmm. again and see if there are differences. And indeed, they found that higher up on a mountain, the column of mercury would be lower because the atmospheric pressure was lower. And in fact, these experiments and the apparatus uh, use the apparatus, what's the plural of that? Apparati or apparatuses? Anyway, they, the, this stuff went on to become the basis of the invention known as the barometer, which is used to detect atmospheric pressure. And for much of history, a, a, one of the most common liquids used in it has been quicksilver or mercury. So people here in the 17th century had learned a number of things. Air has weight. The atmosphere does have weight and it presses down. And this affects all different kinds of fluid dynamics in closed containers. And at least in an approximate sense, vacuums can be created. But the scientific story does not stop there. And maybe in the next episode, we can get into a little more detail on that history. 
uh, because the, the, there's plenty more. But also, we've got to talk about psychology and horror vacui because uh, I, I don't know about you, but you, you ever have that creepy feeling when you're reminded of like walking around at school when there was nobody there or any other place when you were a kid that normally had people in it, but then there were no people in it and you were there and it just didn't mm-hmm. feel right. I think about that oh, all yeah. the time. Yeah. And of course this, this plays into a lot of our, our horror movies as well. And a lot of our fantastic horror scenarios. So we'll discuss some of those, but, but you know, this, uh, coming back to this, this realization that the air has weight, that atmospheric pressure is uh, involved in these observations. Um, it, it's it's something that I feel even as modern humans, we have to remind ourselves of this time and time again, because we can also fall into that line of thinking where we think of an empty room as empty. We think of a clear sky as being empty. Uh, mm. But of course, none of those things are empty. All of those things are completely filled up with air exerting a pressure on us, but a pressure that is so ambient that we do not register it as being pressure. Absolutely. And the way that this pressure affects other things, say like chemical properties. Uh, I think mm-hmm. about the the boiling point of water and how that's yeah. affected by atmospheric pressure at different altitudes and how that affects something as mundane as cooking, how like cooking has to be different at different altitudes. Yeah. Ultimately, we have to realize that we are creatures that evolved to reside within an atmospheric body, and uh, and and even then, only certain parts of that atmospheric body. Yeah. And then, if we want to bring fire with us and use it to boil matter to eat, we have to take into account that it's going to boil a little differently depending on how far up into that massive uh, uh, body of air we travel. We discussed this in a couple of episodes a long time ago. I think. Maybe they they were the ones about uh, sacred experiences on mountaintops people mm-hmm. uh, have had. But the fact about how you basically like you can't boil potatoes on top of Mount Everest. You, people yeah. have tried. You try to boil food to cook it. The problem is the boiling point of water after a certain altitude gets too low. And so your water is boiling in the pot, but it's not hot enough to cook your food. Like mm. <laughs> boiling water is no longer sufficiently hot. Wow. And of course, it's boiling. You can't get any hotter than boiling, so you're just stuck. Like, it won't cook. It's hard to come up with a response to that. I'd forgotten about that tidbit regarding cooking uh, potatoes on Mount Everest. <laughs> For some reason, that's, that's, um, that, that's, uh, that's almost more mind-blowing than anything we've, we've discussed in this episode. I guess because it comes down to what we were talking about earlier, like the perceived world, the world we can relate to versus the uh, the world that seems to exist only within the 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 lofty conversations of philosophers and scientists, uh, like the experience of of boiling potatoes, but not being able to cook them through that boiling like that feels like the twilight zone. That feels like something yeah. that shouldn't be. Rod Serling's kind of a talking to you about this. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close this episode out, but we'll be back with more discussions of uh, the vacuum, the void, and so forth. In the meantime, uh, write into us. We'd love to hear from everyone out there. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, some of the uh, ideas we presented in this episode? And uh, hey, we would we would love to hear your cooking anecdotes from <laughs> from different altitudes. If you have uh, some of those, write in. Uh, we'd love to hear about your your mishaps with boiling potatoes on mountaintops. I know Please. we have some mountaineers out there. Yes, we do. Yeah. Reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do a listener mail episode. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. 
Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.